0: Section number 8 of The Spirit of American Literature This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Recording by Laurie Arcenault The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy Section 8 Whittier Whittier's good sense and modest dignity are nowhere better expressed than in the verses introductory to his collected work. I love the old melodious lays which softly melt the ages through, the songs of Spenser's golden days, Arcadian Sidney's silvery phrase, sprinkling our noon of time with freshest morning dew. Yet vainly in my quiet hours to breathe their marvelous notes, I try. I feel them as the leaves and flowers in silence feel the dewy showers, and drink with glad, still lips the blessing of the sky. The rigor of a frozen clime, the harshness of an untaught ear, the jarring words of one whose rhyme beat often labor's hurried time, or duty's rugged march through storm and strife are here. Of mystic beauty, dreamy grace, The rounded art no lack supplies, Unskilled the subtle lines to trace, Or softer shades of nature's face, I view her common forms with unanointed eyes. Nor mine the seer-like power to show The secrets of the heart and mind, To drop the plummet-line below Our common world of joy and woe. A more intense despair or brighter hope to find. Yet here at least an earnest sense Of human right and weal is shown, A hate of tyranny intense and hearty in its vehemence, As if my brother's pain and sorrow were my own. O freedom, if to me belong, Nor mighty Milton's gift divine, Nor Marvel's wit and graceful song, still with a love as deep and strong as theirs I lay, like them, my best gifts on thy shrine." The New England Quaker, confessing that he could not achieve poetry, has, in the act of confession, made a beautiful poem, sound in stanzaic structure, and not unmelodious. Whittier compels admiration in spite of the undeniable crudities of his lyre, Crudities that he is so charmingly acknowledged, spontaneity, sincerity, passion these are his high gifts. they triumph over all his verbal difficulties. They lift him not among the great poets whose company he humbly knew he could not join, but among the genuine poets who have said their heart in English words, who are true to the earth though they do not rise upon the earth's burning wings of absolute song. Whittier's earliest inspiration was the anti-slavery fervor, and of this passion, the tensest, most noble that swept over New England and roused its dell muse to ecstasy, Whittier was the authentic laureate. It is impossible for a New Englander, even one who fancies himself a thoroughly emancipated modern to detach Whittier's ruggedly heroic verses from the harsh soil of history, to see them except through the noon air of his pacific and serene personality. To hear his verses, as it were from his own lips, gives them double dramatic force. His shy Quaker voice is hoarse with rage. The lips of innocence are white with scorn. The casual reader of Ichabod might be unimpressed, for the verses are plain, ordinary, lighted by no flash of self-explanatory beauty. But when the poem is understood as the divine indignation of a benevolent Quaker at Webster's surrender to the slave power, it becomes incandescent, and one imagines that Webster, cynical politician who bent his shaggy brows histrionically upon his opponents, must have shriveled beneath those lyric curses of naive righteousness. It is the devastating wrath of a peaceful man. Whether Whittier's blasting scorn affected Webster, who was a shrewdly dishonest actor upon a primitive stage of oratory, the poem and the poet's subsequent magnanimity are still profoundly impressive sixty years after the conflict. Poems on current events are as a rule ephemeral. Emotion that is strong enough to make such poems permanent is a mighty fact in literature. In Whittier's occasional verses the vehicle of the emotion seems to have been heated by its very resistance to the idea. He is so intense in his meaning that his technically defective verses are not quite bad, certainly never ludicrous. Sometimes his fiery challenge dashes against the stubborn hardness of his words like the dissonance of swift water over rocks. For example, the lines from Toussaint Louverture: to hear above his scar-worn back the heavy slave whip's frequent crack. Frequent is a feebly mischosen word, but the two lines and the verses in which they are set are powerful. The slave ships is naively terrible. One stanza has the naked simplicity of genius. Red glowed the western waters. The setting sun was there, scattering alike on wave and cloud his fiery mesh of hair, amidst a group of blindness a solitary eye gazed from the burdened slaver's deck into that burning sky. To make sure that the plain power of that and other stanzas is genuine poetic art, that we are not misled by the tragedy of the subject into ascribing to the verses more effect than is inwardly theirs, we have only to read the mild melodramatic poems which Longfellow dutifully contributed to the cause, verses unspontaneous, uninspired. The reader's patriotic sympathies cannot fill utterly bad verses with the breath of life. The noblest enthusiasm cannot flame in wholly unpoetic verse. All the earnest belief in the world will not forge poetry. The abundance of dead, unremembered verses by others on the same themes that Whittier rushed into rough rhythms is proof of his individual genius. It may be that our knowledge of his seraphic gentleness throws into relief the Hebraic violence of his prophecies. It may be that the facts of biography lend adventitious merit to his poetry. But even so, the failure of other equally sincere enthusiasts, and his almost unfailing success in striking out some white-hot lines in poem after poem on the same subject, acclaim his genius when all temporal and historic prejudices are deducted. The difference between a good hymn and a bad hymn lies not in a difference of religious sincerity, and the reader's accessible emotions will be the same in both cases. The difference is in the psalmist's poetic powers. Even when denuded of their attendant circumstances and read by somebody not familiar with our national struggle, the following verses must surely stand out strong, like a speech of Lincoln's. Hoarse, horrible and strong. Rises to heaven that agonizing cry, Filling the arches of the hollow sky. How long, O God, how long? And these verses written apropos of the adoption of Pinkey's resolutions, prosaic words that send one to a handbook of history, Hear how they ring. Shall our New England stand erect no longer, But stoop in chains upon her downward way, thicker to gather on her limbs and stronger day after day oh no methinks from all her wild green mountains from valleys where her slumbering fathers lie from her blue rivers and her welling fountains and clear cold sky from her rough coast and isles which hungry ocean gnaws with his surges from the fisher's skiff with white sails swaying to the billows motion round rock and cliff. From the free fireside of her unbought farmer, from her free labourer at his loom and wheel, from the brown smith shop where beneath the hammer rings the red steel, from each and all, if God hath not forsake our land and left us to an evil choice, loud as a summer thunderbolt shall waken a people's voice. Most of the singers of liberty in America have been beneath their task. Their eagle has been a property eagle, the sordid pun happens to be tragically true. And their flag has been a painted cloth, a crude bunting which congressmen are wont to spatter with words. Whitman and Whittier, each in his own sincere tones, have spoken with the authentic voice of liberty and spoken many times during long lives. Lowell's muse uttered liberty once or twice, but his democracy was literary and not instinctive. Emerson, who held a lyre crude as Whittier's in a highly cultivated hand, sang twice or thrice in ringing tones of rebellion. Whittier, shy and gentle, nurtured in a childlike faith and untrained, unperplexed by culture, sends the tones of his trumpet across the world to England, the arch-hypocrite mouthing liberty and defending slavery, and to the Pope, vicar of the Prince of Peace, entangled in cowardly and murderous politics. While American statesmen, North and South, play their cunningly stupid games, and the agitators hurl indignant rhetoric, and the respectable pro-slavery Bostonians mob the orators. Whittier, cradled in an unwarlike creed, blazes forth in bellicose rebuke, strikes again and again at the smooth brow of evil with verses virile and aflame. His single purpose overwhelms the obstacles of his verbal hesitations. There is no mistaking him, even when the ear protests against his unintentional dissonances. Whether his work is poetry or rhymed propaganda, it is literature, for it expresses a man and events in words that are today alive with emotion. One who by temperament and by the habit of other reading feels himself out of sympathy with Whittier's hoarse verses, has but to open his mind and present fresh surfaces to the impact of Whittier's intensity in order to be smitten by it. Whittier's religious verse is a mixture of banality and exaltation. At its worst, it is but the grotesque psaltery with which Protestant Christianity, from Dr. Watts to Dr. Moody, has offended the sensitive ear. At its best, it is the passion of worship which transcends particular belief or doubt and imparts immediately the religion of the singer. Laus Deo is a moving song of adoration, its triumphant ecstasy is instantly contagious. His less inspired hymns are sweet and manly, in spite of their childishness, and now and again their childishness becomes rather a childlike simplicity which is near to poetry. Of Whittier's narratives and ballads, some, like The Witch's Daughter, are of good substance but unpoetic in expression. Others, like Maud Muller, are simply bad, as Whittier, with his mischievous modesty, was the first to admit. Cassandra Southwick is a good ballad. It has swing and rush and a lively pictorial effect. Skipper Ireson's Ride is excellent. It has the haunting ring of true balladry. It repeats itself over and over in the reader's ear, and whatever is of unforgettable rhythm OF A RHYTHM THAT CARRIES AND CONTINUALLY REMINDS ONE OF THE CONTENT, IS TRUE POETRY. CHANT THIS OVER ONCE AND IT WILL STAY IN THE MEMORY. OLD FLOYD IRISON FOR HIS HARD HEART, TARRED IN FEATHER AND CARRIED IN A CART BY THE WOMEN OF MARBLEHEAD. THE BEST OF POETS IS HE WHO DREAMS SOMETHING THAT THE REST OF MANKIND WOULD NEVER, NEVER THINK OF AND MAKE IT REAL. Dante, Shakespeare, Shelley. A lesser type of poet, but a genuine poet, is he who celebrates the actual land on which he lives, the daily scenes familiar to many eyes, the people among whom he moves. Whittier is the unrivalled portrayer of the New England landscape. Burden him with every disability that criticism can impute to a poet, unfrock him from the priesthood of perfect singers reduce him to the plain common ground of minor poets where he placed himself, the simplest most undiluted common citizen in the democracy of letters, remember every gaucherie of which he is innocently guilty, he still keeps on Yankee Hill's immortal sheep. His masterpiece is Snowbound. The placid fidelity of the poem, the justice of the details, THE APPARENTLY UNSOUGHT FELICITY OF THE WORDS IDENTIFY IT INEVITABLY AND FOREVER WITH THE EXPERIENCE OF every one WHO HAS EVER LIVED IN NEW ENGLAND. THIS PAGE HAPPENS TO BE SHAPING ITSELF IN A NEW ENGLAND FARMHOUSE IN JANUARY. THE OPEN WOOD FIRE IS STILL BURNING, ABLY REINFORCED BY STEAM COILS. THE WIRES ARE STRUNG ALONG THE ROAD FOR ELECTRIC LIGHTS WHICH WILL STAR THE WINTRY DARKNESS NEXT YEAR. The cosmopolitanism which has unified the world has reached to this corner of New England and softened the asperities of the ancestral character. The walls of a room nearby, once filled with nasal hymns, give their mural ears to the strange magic of Debussy and Strauss. The intellectual atmosphere has changed. The people are different in many ways, some good, some bad. Electric cars go by the door and an abominable new house of green and brown shingles is an unlovely neighbor to this white house designed and built long ago by the village carpenters. Many aspects of the world out the window are unlike anything that Whittier saw, and yet snowbound is true. It describes yonder landscape. The poem stands through all changes permanent as one of the granite boulders sheeted in snow. The fingers of life molded the words. Through the plain verses, actuality said itself, and actuality is immortal. If one who had been brought up in a New England village should be stricken blind, snowbound would give him eyes again for all that Whittier describes. The rustic muse of the poem is like the mother at the hearth. Recalling in her fitting phrase, so rich and picturesque and free, the common unrhymed poetry, of simple life and country ways, the story of her early days. The sketches of character are good portraits, not too highly praised when they are compared to Chaucer's prologue. The faces are alive and ruddy in the firelight, homely, beautiful like Flemish pictures, Whittier's own just analogy. The father, a prompt, decisive man. The uncle, innocent of books. And the aunt was ever more charming tribute to the elderly maiden. The morning dew that dried so soon, with others glistened at her noon. Through years of toil and soil and care, from glossy tress to thin gray hair, all unprofaned she held apart the virgin fancies of the heart. Then the sister, keeping with many a light disguise, the secret of self-sacrifice. And the strongest portrait of all, strange that Whittier of all men could draw it so richly, is that of the cultivated passionate woman. A certain pard-like treacherous grace swayed the lithe limbs and dropped the lash, lent the white teeth the dazzling flash, and under low brows, black with night, rayed out at times a dangerous light, a woman, tropical, intense. Whittier's art is restricted. He never achieved the final majesties of the grand style. But within his limits he is genuinely good. His verse lacks some of the virtues, and by compensation it is free from some of the vices of his university-bred contemporaries who wrote so often with the pens of the ages that they did not learn firmly to grasp their own. Whittier's poems are indigenous to the soil, as lilacs and elm-trees, and they are also the voice of a very great man. Through a medium which he did not fully master, he did manage to convey with power and vividness his fiery convictions, blazes of passion across the blue serenity of his faith. With the sureness that plain, simple vision gives to an imperfect draftsman, he made pictures of his landscape that are unsurpassed, if not unsurpassable. If the day comes when they are no longer enjoyed, on that day the last Yankee will have died. Biographical Note John Greenleaf Whittier was born at Haverhill, Massachusetts, December 17, 1807. He died at Hampton Falls, New Hampshire, September 7, 1892. His schooling was imperfect, and his Quaker Puritan father did not approve his addiction to verse. He read some poetry, notably Burns, and his sister secretly sent his early rhymes to the Newburyport Free Press, edited by William Lloyd Garrison. This opened his career as poet and journalist. He became editor of the Haverhill Gazette and the New England Magazine. His newspaper work brought him into practical relations with politics, and he might have gone to Congress, but he refused. He was a capable, sane worker for the cause of abolition, was attacked by respectable mobs, and met them bravely. He went to the Massachusetts legislature in 1835. In 1837 he went to Philadelphia to work on the Pennsylvania Freeman. Thereafter he lived at Amesbury and Danvers, Massachusetts. He did not marry. His works are Legends of New England, 1831, Mall Pitcher, 1832, Justice and Expediency, 1833, Mog Megoney, 1836, Poems, 1837, Ballads, anti-slavery poems, etc., 1838, Lays of My Home, 1843, The Stranger in Lowell, 1845, Supernaturalism in New England, 1847, Voices of Freedom, 1849, Old Portraits and Modern Sketches, 1850, Songs of Labor, 1850. The Chapel of the Hermits, 1853. Literary Recreations and Miscellanies, 1854. The Panorama, 1856. Home Ballads, 1860. In Wartime, 1863. National Lyrics, 1865. Snowbound, 1866. The Tent on the Beach 1867 Among the Hills 1868 Miriam 1870 The Pennsylvania Pilgrim 1872 Hazel Blossoms 1874 Centennial Hymn 1876 The Vision of Eckard 1878 The King's Missive 1881, the Bay of Seven Islands, 1883, Saint Gregory's Guest, 1886, at Sundown, 1892. The Standard Life of Whittier is by Samuel T. Picard, in two volumes. End of section number eight. Recording by Laurie Arsenalt, Maine.